Oh my, let's, let's pray. Lord, thanks that you're sovereignly in control of everything that goes on uh, in our lives and around us and that you have purpose to use all of those things in a redemptive way. Yeah, thanks for doing that in Daniel's life and that sometimes, sometimes we can look back and see the fruit of that and no doubt other things will wait till eternity to see how you've chosen to use hardships uh, to make Christ more real to us. But we thank you that you turn things upside down and inside out as needed so that they end up blessing. I ask you too, Lord, just this morning as we look at your word together that you would speak to us, comfort us, console us, cajole us, um, but speak to us where we're at. Draw us closer to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys ever been in a crowd, uh, maybe a crowded place, and yet felt like you were alone or lonely or by yourself? Or maybe you've had, uh, no one feels that way, right? Ever. Or um, maybe had some success in your life, uh, finish a project, do something that's difficult, come to the end of something that's meaningful and successful, and on one hand enjoy it, and on the other feel like, yeah, that's good, but it, it's not quite what I thought it would be. It still feels like something's missing. There are innumerable times and ways in life in which no matter how good things are, there seems to be a hollow place in the middle of our psyche or our soul. And we wouldn't say that we're unhappy or unthankful. It's just that it doesn't seem to be all there. There seems to be something else that's missing. To be human is to experience times of restlessness and dissatisfaction, even in the best of times. It's common to all of us. There's an ache to our humanity. There's a longing for something. There's an itch that seems impossible to scratch. Sometimes life is so busy that we may not feel that in the moment. We can overwhelm ourselves with activities. We're, we're going 100 miles an hour. We can overwhelm that sense. But in our quiet moments, at least, we're aware of that. There's a restlessness of heart that's common to our humanity. There's an ache. And there's a longing that oftentimes believers and unbelievers alike seek to fill in inadequate ways but we're trying to fill that void. And you think of the use or the abuse of food, drink, sex, drugs, success, money, anything you can think that you can sort of fill your life with. You know, at the end of the day, we would say that's an, an unhelpful attempt or an unsuccessful attempt to fill that void that is common in all of us, even in the best of times. Augustine said it this way in his work, Confessions, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. God is our ultimate home. He's our destination. Christ is the more, the thing behind the longing, the person behind the beauty our hearts yearn for because they were made for that face-to-face -face relationship with Him that even as Christians with the Holy Spirit today, we do not have. We do not have that face-to-face -face fellowship with Christ we were made for. 
our longings are not only met ultimately in Christ, but in the glory Christ gives us when we finally share His glorious image. We long and ache not only to be someplace else, our, longs, our hearts long to be someplace else. You know, on this earth we've got sin and there's failure and there's hardships of one sort or another. There's a sense in which the longing for home is the longing to be someplace else where those things don't exist. But there's also a longing to be someone else. You know, all of us in honest moments, if you said, I, you take Mike today and put him in heaven, is that a happy situation? Well, not if Mike is as Mike is today, imperfect and sinful and tempted and you name it. So we have built in, and this is especially true or acute for Christians, we have built in a desire to be someplace else that's really home and to be there someone else, someone who's glorious, our glorious version of ourselves, not as we are today. C.S. Lewis in his essay, The Weight of Glory, said in part this, concerning our future glory, so someplace else, but also someone else, someone more glorious than we are today. He said this, our lifelong nostalgia, those moments of nostalgia, sort of longing and looking back perhaps, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. Isn't that good? So to be someplace else, to be someone else, when we're not outside looking in, we're inside and we belong inside. He said that would be glory on one hand, but it would also satisfy that ache inherent to our humanity that something's missing. He's talking about that same thought. Now the Apostle Peter described the lives of Christians as those who are exiles. You remember exiles are people who are from one place but temporarily on assignment someplace else. They're not home. And exiles feel that. As we wind up our short study in 1 Peter this morning, we see that as exiles, there's always a longing, there's always a desire, there's always an itch to be home. And not just to be home, but to be home in the form, the completed glorious form, if you will, that is part of our redemption in Christ. Peter shows us that our exile will end in Christ's glorious presence, and in His glorious presence we will find not only our true home, but something we can perhaps call a reciprocal glory, which is the benefit and gift of His death and resurrection, and also some other things, including our participation in suffering. We'll look at this here in a moment. But our heart's longings will only be fulfilled when our lives of exile are over, when we see Christ in His glory, we join Him transformed into our own divinely ordained glory. That will be to be finally home, to be the place we belong as the person we should be or as the people we should be. On your study sheet, we're going to start in 1 Peter here again. If you look in 1 Peter, the term glory or glorify occurs 14 times. And guys, that's a lot in five chapters. Glory, glorification... This is a key concept for Peter. And Peter knew something about this in, in a way that we wouldn't. 
On your study sheet, the verses are listed for this occasion in, in Jesus' life and Peter, James, and John in which Jesus took his friends, his close little cadre of friends, they went up onto a mountain and while they're there, Jesus is praying and while they're there and Jesus is praying, Moses and Elijah show up and Jesus is transformed before them. He's not the lowly carpenter from Galilee when they look at him in this occasion but the text says this is Matthew 17 his face shone like the sun and his clothes were white as light they saw Jesus in glory that you'll see later in Revelation not his earthly glory but the glory that he would ultimately have in heaven this made an impact on Peter no doubt he's thinking about it as he writes his first letter he's thinking about it as he writes his second letter also second Peter 1 says we were eyewitnesses of His, Jesus' majesty. We've seen Jesus in His glory back there on that mountain. He received honor and glory from God the Father. The, the Father was giving Him a, a moment, if you will, of the glory that was innately His. If you go to Revelation 1, when the Apostle John sees Jesus in heaven, he doesn't see the guy he knew on earth. The description includes this, he has eyes like fire, feet like glowing bronze, his face is shining like the sun. That's Jesus in his glory. That's some element of what Peter had already seen. Now Peter connects Jesus' sufferings on earth with his glory. Jesus' sufferings on earth with his glory. This is 1 Peter 1 verses 11 and 21. Verse 11 says this, the Spirit of Christ in the Old Testament prophets was indicating when He, when the Spirit predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, the, the sufferings of Jesus and then the glories that would come. Verse 21, something similar, God raised Jesus from the dead and gave Him glory. That Jesus' suffering and death is directly connected in Peter with Jesus' future glory. Now, if there's any question in our mind, is that a direct connection or is Mike going too far? Is that an implication that the text doesn't actually say? If you look in Hebrews 2, verse 9, the link is absolute and it's direct. The writer of the Hebrews there says, We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. That's his exile, not in heaven, glory, but on earth as an exile. Uh, namely, Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Why? Because of the suffering of death. The one who will return for us is in himself glorious, and his glory is the fruit of his exile suffering. God always connected Jesus' exile and his suffering in that exile with his future glory. They're directly connected for Peter and certainly in Hebrews as well. So in the incarnation, you've got God the Son taking on our humanity as an exile, coming down to walk in the shoes of this fallen race. That's his exile. And God intends, through His exile on this earth, by the way, it's interesting, on the Mount of Transfiguration, it says that Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about His exodus. <laughs> it uses the term His exodus, which is His death and resurrection, which was coming up. So the law and the prophet, represented by those two guys, are there testifying to Jesus, you're going to fulfill all the things that we and, and our compatriots spoke about you in the Old Testament the exodus, but it was always connected to Jesus' future glory. 
So for exiles, glory follows suffering. We could say suffering is the ground in which your future glory is growing, just as that was true for Jesus. Like Jesus, exiles on earth gain future glory through present sufferings. Now, suffering in Christ's name, in His cause, that was the second message out of this series. We're still talking about that a little bit today, but it's related to the direct connection with future glory. That's very evident in Jesus' life, and we're bringing this up today because that's what's going to be true for you and me as well. Christ suffered as an exile. We follow Him. We suffer as exiles. Suffering produced Jesus' glory. Guess what suffering's going to do in your life and mine? It's going to produce future glory as well. You see this real directly when Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He says there, light and momentary affliction. And guys, this doesn't matter. If you were persecuted for decades on earth, as believers are being persecuted now in parts of Africa, China, other parts of the world, Indonesia, it's going on today. If you were persecuted every day of your life on earth, the glory you have in heaven would be so magnified beyond your suffering, it would seem as if one couldn't be directly connected to the other, but they are. Paul says, momentary light affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul says it's if they're not even directly connected, but they are. That the little bit of suffering you have here, well, God takes that, it's as if He magnifies it when He gives you glory for the little bit of suffering you have on earth today. Jesus' exile ended at His reception back into heaven when the Father heaped glory on Him. So, you know, if you think of Revelation 1 and who it is that John sees, or if you go to Revelation 5 and you see the eyes of everyone in heaven are in one place and on one person, it's on the Lamb of God who's become the lion from the tribe of Judah, Revelation 5.5. He's the one that overcome and He's the one all the eyes of heaven are on. He's there in glory. He's being praised as He should be. That's the fruit of His exile wanderings and sufferings. Our exile ends ultimately at Jesus' return when mortality puts on immortality and our bodies sown in dishonor are raised in glory. That's if we die before Jesus calls us. Someone's going to plant your body and mine in the ground and we're going to go on to something. We'll talk about that next. Think of this. Uh, the end of our exile not only means our restless hearts are finally at rest in Christ's presence, but it also ushers us into a glory we, 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 don't, we don't have imaginations adequate for. We can't extrapolate from what we know to what will be. But we do know there's at least three things that tie to our future glory, and it's these. It's our union with Christ. It's our service for Christ. And it's the one we've just talked about, our sufferings for Christ. God intentionally connects all of these things in your life and mine to your future glory. So if you've got your study sheet... 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, specifically at verse 4, Peter says that we've been born again to a living hope and to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's like a treasure that can't be tarnished. It's yours and it's in heaven and it's, it's your inheritance. You have a glory waiting for you in heaven that's simply because you're in Christ and Christ is in you. That you are co-heirs. Scripture tells us we're co-heirs with Christ. And that means what Jesus gets, we get. 
That's crazy, isn't it? What Jesus gets, we get. That's your inheritance. So you have a glory. don't know exactly what that is, but you have a glory. You have a reward. You have an inheritance in heaven waiting for you that is entirely because you're in Christ and Christ is in you. You share his inheritance. The Apostle John says it this way in 1 John 3, 2. We know when he appears, when Jesus appears, we'll be like him. We won't look the way we do now because we'll see him as he is. We'll see Jesus as he is and we'll become as we should be as well when Jesus calls, when he appears. Romans 9, 23 says it this way. To make known the riches of his glory, riches of God's glory, for vessels of mercy, that's us, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. This is somewhat mind-blowing to me. If I look at my life or if you look at your life and you say, God has prepared me, my life, my experience. He's prepared me knowing all my faults, all my sins, all the ways I blow. He's prepared me for glory. For weights of glory I can't even contemplate, can't fathom, can't get my mind around. That's my future. That's what God intends to do for you and me because we're in Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 says it this way, God called you through the gospel that, for this purpose, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we think, I, I hear the gospel, think of Daniel's story, heard the gospel when I'm little, and I get saved, and so I'm glad I'm not under God's eternal wrath and judgment. That's a good day, right? That's a good life. But there's so much more that God's ordained for us related to glory that has nothing to do with just escaping divine appropriate wrath and punishment for our sinfulness, but beyond the negative, this positive that's too big to get our minds around. In our home going, we'll share Christ's glory as those who are His. So we've got a future glory that's tied to the fact that Christ is in us and we're in Christ, that we share His inheritance, His future and present glory. The second thing is this, and we're not developing this this morning. This would be a message all to itself. Uh, our service for Christ is going to receive glory, and again, in, in a way that's... Uh, Hard to get our minds around. Peter says this in 1 Peter 5 verse 4. This is specific to the shepherds in those local churches he was writing to. He says when, when the chief shepherd, when Christ appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. When Christ appears, you under shepherds, he's going to give you an unfading crown of glory. You know, the scripture talks about crowns. Uh, as rewards and this sort of goes to the thought of reward the the whole notion that we stand before Christ one day and he he sifts our works it has nothing to do with sin just what did you do for me he rewards us for those things and somehow that includes this element of glory he doesn't specify it he doesn't lay it out whatever it is it'll be worth having significance the ability to enjoy Christ to know him to act in his name Specifically, I suspect it's all kinds of things related to that. But there's going to be a glory tied to what we do for Christ. So Peter says to the shepherds, just like him, elders in local churches, he says, God, Christ is going to give you something for the service you rendered him to the household of faith. And that's true for all of us. Uh, he singles that out as he's calling elders to lead. 
local churches the way Christ would in Christ's stead. But that's true for every Christian. Every Christian has a spiritual gift. Every Christian is called to serve Christ. And when you serve Christ and you serve others in His name, He's going to reward you for that. And somehow that includes this concept of glory. It will be glorious. And last, the suffering for Christ that we've mentioned. Just highlight again here for a moment. This is 1 Peter 4, 13 and 14. Pete said, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. He's not saying sufferings are pleasant things to endure, and that's why we should love them. He says, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. The Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You remember Jesus says in the Synoptic Gospels, when you're persecuted for Him, rejoice. It's an indication that you belong to Him, and that earns its own glory in the future as well. Romans 8.18, Paul says it a little differently. He says the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Again, the thought is no matter how long or how badly we suffer on planet Earth, the glory that God attaches or extrapolates from that, it can't even be compared. It's so much greater. And then last, 2 Corinthians 4.17, we already cited this eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So, union with Christ and in our inheritance, the ways we labor for Christ, serve Christ, and suffering for Christ, God attaches to all of those things future glory, your future glory. Our union with Christ, our service for Christ, ends up being tied to our future glory. And think of this for a minute. Um, if you say, when we talk about glory, uh, we usually think about uh, we're, we want to give God glory. We're giving Jesus glory. We worship or we serve to give God glory, which is absolutely true, of course. If you talk about much about the Christian's future glory, it might sound like overstatement. But here's two things to think about. The first is this, we don't develop the theme of our future glory, God records it in Scripture. So this is His idea, we didn't make this up, right? Your future glory and mine, this isn't Mike's idea, this isn't your idea, this is God's doing. He says we're created for it, we're made for it. You can't escape this as a Christian, you're going to be in a glory so great, Lewis in the same thing, the weight of glory, that same essay says if you could see someone else in their future glory, you'd want to bow down and worship them. I think he's right. I, I think our future glory is mind-blowing. So God's the one that says this. We didn't make this up. The second thing is this. Let's say that you're a parent of an outstanding young man. Let's say your son is the best son in the world. Like all of your sons are, right? Best son in the world, most handsome, most gifted, smartest, most thoughtful, most Christ-like. And this guy, he grows up and he wants to get married and you're the parent. What kind of woman do you want for that perfect son? What kind of woman do you think is an appropriate fit for that son? You want the best woman you can find, don't you? She's got to be beautiful, smart, humble, She's right? Proverbs 31, anything you want to think of. She's got to be the best, right? If you're God the Father, what kind of bride do you want for your son? You want a glorious bride for your son. Guys, this isn't all about us, is it? 
Because at the end of the day, if you're a Christian, you're a member of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. You think of Ephesians 5, and there the concept is Jesus is making us spotless. The term glory isn't there so much, but He's making us perfect. All we should be, nothing we shouldn't be. What kind of bride does Jesus deserve? What kind of bride does the Father want for Jesus? A glorious bride. So the thought of glory, we're not overblowing ourselves. It's God's idea, not ours. And it's appropriate because nothing less than a glorious bride would make any sense to rule and reign with Jesus forever. And that's the call of the church. So you're going to be connected personally to a glory we can't even fathom today. But you're going to be, and the church will be, a glorious bride for Christ. We'll be an appropriate match for King Jesus. Think of Psalm 45, talks on this theme in the Old Testament. But that's the deal. It would be hard for us to focus more on our future glory than God already has. And the end isn't just that we're glorious, it's that Christ gets who and what He should. That's where that ends, on glory. Uh, there, we've had, as a church, uh, in the last several months, we've had a couple of uh, deaths and burials. And, you know, whenever uh, you do a funeral and you stand at the graveside and you place your friend, your wife, your spouse, uh, your mother, your sister, your friend in the ground, it's a serious moment, isn't it? And it's a great great reminder. Uh, short of Jesus coming soon, all of us, just like every generation before us, right? We're going to die. Somebody's going to plant our body in the ground. What happens to us then? Well, we go home, don't we? So the body's in the ground, but the soul is where? The, the soul's in heaven, right? Philippians 1 and 2 Corinthians make this absolutely clear. And frankly, these are verses almost always I share at Graveside along with 1 Thessalonians 4 that that person, we're burying the body, but the soul is in Christ's presence as a Christian. So Philippians 1, 23, the Apostle Paul says, I desire to depart in death and be with Christ. He says, man, that's living. That's the good thing. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, we prefer rather to be absent from the body and be at home with the Lord. So you think of all the former saints of all the ages who have died, their home, their home now, their exile is over. They see Christ, they abide in His presence, their hearts are at rest. Thinking about initially this restlessness on planet earth, we're not where we should be and there's that sense. Well, that's over for them because they're where they belong. They're in heaven with Christ. I love Robert Louis Stevenson's epitaph. You remember, uh, here he lies where he longed to be, home is the hunter, home from the hill, and the sailor, home from the sea. Well, I think that's what those souls in heaven, they could quote Stevenson, that'd be a good fit. My soul is where I've longed to be, because I'm in heaven, with Christ. Now, though their exile status as a stranger on earth is over, they have not come into the possession of their inheritance or their glory. You can see souls in heaven interacting with God. Think of Revelation 7, the souls under the altar. They don't have bodies, but they're in heaven. 
They're in God's presence. They can interact with God. They can see Jesus. But they don't have their resurrection body. Their, their glory is incomplete. They're where they long to be, but they're not what they long to be. That hasn't happened yet. That only happens when Christ appears again for His own, when souls in heaven gain resurrection bodies. 1 Peter 1.7 says this, The tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when at the revelation of Jesus Christ. At the revelation, the appearing, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Verse 13 in chapter 1 Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter was making sure they knew that it was when we see Jesus as He is, when He calls us, that's when we're not only home, but we're transformed. That we gain the glory God destined us to have. 1 Peter 5 verse 6 Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you he may give you that glory and colossians 3 verse 4 from the apostle paul when christ who is your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory when does this happen not when you die and your soul goes to heaven not before soul is given resurrection body first thessalonians these are references on your study sheet first thessalonians 4 16 through 18 and 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 55 are key passages related to that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is a lengthy treatment of the resurrection generally. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, let me just say briefly, uh, what was going on there, uh, pagans had come to Christ. And it's interesting that they already knew, Paul wasn't with the Thessalonians very long, but he talked to them about the second coming, uh, uh, second coming, the appearing, be careful what I say here. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, you're, you're waiting for His Son to return from heaven and, and Jesus who saves you from the wrath to come. There was this whole expectation on new Christians that they were waiting to see Jesus. Well, meanwhile, some of their believing friends and family members die. And their question is, have they missed out? Because we're waiting to see Jesus. We're waiting for His appearing and these guys aren't here. So maybe they miss out. And so Paul wrote to clarify that, and he says, well, no, actually, they're already in heaven, but when Christ comes, the language is, the Lord Himself descends from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God. It says the dead in Christ rise first. So those disembodied souls in heaven, when Jesus appears and shouts, their resurrection body somehow... I don't know what this looks like in the movie version, okay? I just know what the text says. Their souls from heaven gain their resurrection body and they meet Christ in the air. And I think the timetable here is so short that it'll probably appear simultaneously. But he says, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up with them in the air. And then he says, and so we will always be with the Lord. That's the moment of glory. So the souls in heaven, they're home, but they don't have their glory yet. We all get our glory at the same time. When Christ comes and calls and we rise to meet Him in the air, we get those glorified bodies. We're not, again, going into the whole topic of rewards and the bema or the judgment seat of Christ. That's another 
topic for another day, but we gain our glory when Christ calls us and we gain those resurrection bodies. We become like Christ, we see Him as He is, we share His glory, and from that time on, we're with Christ, that's what the text says, in glory. Verse 17, 1 Thessalonians, when that happens, so we shall always be with the Lord. We'll always be with the Lord from that moment on. Now guys, we often say things like this, this earth is not our home, heaven is our home. So when we're thinking about where we long to be, I want to fill this up just a little bit. Heaven is our real home, and let's qualify that a couple different ways. Right now, this earth is ruled by the one God calls the God of this world, the God of this age. The whole power, 1 John says, lies under the power of the evil one. So Satan, this is his kingdom, he claimed it. You remember the temptations with Jesus in the wilderness? Satan offers him the kingdoms of the world because they're his. So this is the kingdom of darkness. Think of Colossians 1. This is the kingdom you and I are born into. And if we die in this same kingdom, citizens not of heaven, but only of earth, we, we eventually join Satan, separated from God forever. So we get it. We say, this earth is not my home. I I get that. That's good. Jesus right now is in heaven, right? He's at the right hand of the Father. And again, I I don't know where heaven is. Is is heaven next to us in a different, you know, string theory and multiple universes? Maybe heaven's right here and we're right here and we can't see it. Or maybe heaven's, I think it's the Adventists that say, if you go through the constellation Orion, you, you find heaven up there. I don't know where it is. But Jesus is in heaven right now. So we say the earth isn't our home. Nope, ruled by Satan, his kingdom, his kingdom of darkness. Jesus is in heaven. Jesus is in heaven and heaven is our home. We say, yeah, that's good. Let me ask you this, though. So when Jesus returns in the second coming and he sets up his kingdom on earth for a thousand years, where's your home? It's not in heaven. It's here. Because wherever Christ is, that's where you are, right? Your home isn't heaven per se, it's with Christ. Heaven as we know it isn't where Jesus physically is going to reside in the future, it's on the earth. And what happens after that thousand year reign? Think of Revelation 19 and going into 20, and then 21 and 22. What happens? Well, God establishes a new heaven and a new earth and on that new heaven and new earth in it is the new jerusalem and that's where jesus is right on the throne and the river of life coming out from jesus throne and the trees of life and that's where jesus is so where are you then first thessalonians 4 17 says wherever he is that's where you are so your your home your new home then is the new jerusalem it's in a new heavens and it's on a new earth but maybe not heaven as we think All I want to qualify is this. If you just say heaven's my home, it's misleading because it's incomplete. Your home, the place you belong, is wherever Christ is. So imagine this for a minute. Uh, A quality shopping woman travels to Chicago to shop. And while she's there, she meets a new friend. And they're chatting and they trade information. And the visitor tells her friend from Chicago, I'm from New York. Great, they trade other niceties. Months later, the visitor's back in Chicago shopping again. And they're chatting again, and the visitor tells her friend about her home in L.A. 
And the gal says, hold on, wait a minute, what do you mean? I thought you said you were from New York. New York is your home. And she says, well, my husband got a new job in L.A. So where's her home? Her home's wherever her husband is. That's the thought here. Jesus' future isn't static and neither is yours. But this is the thing we know. The place we long to be isn't a fixed point in a parallel universe or heaven beyond the stars. It's with Christ. And Scripture says some of the places Christ is going to be. And that's where you'll be. And that's the only place you'll want to be. It's where Christ is. So your future, so heaven, your future in heaven is really your future with Christ. Where he is, that's home. Let me wind down by reading another Lewis quote. You know, it doesn't matter how many times I hear people quote him. I always quote him again. It was so profound. This is from Mere Christianity. By the way, Steve and Kent will be starting a Sunday school in November, I think November 8th, uh, on this same book, Mere Christianity. This is a very small part of what he says in that work. He says this, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, satisfy that desire, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country. That's the place I know ultimately I belong, which I shall not find till after death or at Jesus' call at His appearing. Our home will always be with Christ Wherever He is, that's where home is. And the glory God gives us makes us fit partners for Christ. So all the restlessness will be gone. All the longings will be met. The faint echoes Lewis talked about become beautiful music and shadows become glorious substance. So if we, if we pull together the five messages from 1 Peter, we are right now exiles on earth. We're called to suffer for Christ, in Christ's name, while serving as His holy priesthood. You remember that we're proclaiming the excellencies of the one who's called us out of darkness. We're humble in our areas of leadership and we're waiting for the end of our exile in the appearing of Jesus Christ when He changes us into the glorious creatures He always meant us to be adequate to share eternity with Him. That's home, that's where we belong, and that's in glory the people God's always meant us to be. That's a pretty good future. We can work with this. We're good with this. Why don't you rise with me, and I want to close by reading together sort of along that theme from Jude 24. And the worship team will come up and we'll join them in singing here in just a moment. Read with me, please. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now 
and forever. Amen.